0: And that's why I've always been a great advocate for for growth, because if you don't grow and you stagnate, then there really isn't a lot of career opportunities for people. A growing business gives everybody the opportunity for a great career. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Ross Eads. Ross is the CEO of Red Commerce, a global leader in placing SAP professionals with 250 employees in six locations around the world. Prior to joining Red Commerce in 2018, Ross was the CEO of Horton Group International, a global executive search and leadership firm with 50 offices in 32 countries. Ross has a phenomenal track record as a CEO within the recruiting and staffing industry. He built Modus Professional Services Group International into a 300 million turnover business with 800 staff. He has taken a private business through an IPO to successful flotation and listed on the London Stock Exchange. Previous successes include developing Interquest Group from a 10 million uh, pound turnover business to a hundred million pounds in revenue. So Ross, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Matt. You've been at this a long time, I guess. So you've got lots of experience to to share with with us today. Um, listen, Red Commerce is your current business, and I and it's one we'll probably spend the most time talking about. Um, you successfully led the firm through the pandemic. Um, which you know has been devastating if not you know devastating or difficult for for most of the industry uh you guys managed to rank number 3 on recruiter magazines hot 100 list so that's out of 30 or 40,000 recruitment companies in the UK and you guys were the third most uh successful at least in terms of your um GP per employee, which is an indicator of efficiency and productivity for sure. So, really keen to learn how you did that. But, Ross, could you start by telling the story of how you built up InterQuest Group PLC? Okay. I I mean,
1: InterQuest was a great, great journey, great, enjoyable um, job. I'd obviously gone from a large company, MPS, down to a smaller one, but the, the ambitions, um, that I had, and, and uh, we have a chairman at the time, and, and a non-exec that we had. Uh, you know, was to grow this company over a five-year period uh, through a buy-and-build. Um, and halfway through the five-year period, list it on the stock market, um, and and it was great. You know, it was a really good experience. Um, uh, I mean, the IPO was probably well, it was a new thing for me to be involved in, and you yeah, know, we aim to get take up of about 30% of the share capital. Um, and, and this would give uh, the management team an, uh, two, a couple of things, really. One, a chance to see what their shares were really worth once it was on the stock market. And more more importantly, gave us the ability to acquire companies through paper, with, with paper and cash, instead of just mm-hmm. acquiring them with, with, with cash. So, um you know, that, that whole process was was good fun, um, really enjoyed presenting the story to the interest, institutional investors, you know, as part of the IPO process. Um, invariably, when when you go through that sort of process, the people you think that are going to take up the stock generally don't, and the, the ones that you don't think are going to take up the stock from the presentations generally do. So um, I think they're all pretty good poker players, um, but uh, but 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 that was a great experience, and um, yeah, there, there were a few learns along the way as well.
0: Could you could you delve into that? Like, what were the key learns or the the, the challenges that you had to navigate in order to to pull that off?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, the main learn or the one that that sort of sits with me today, sort of several years on. Um, was the understanding of the close relationship with the corporate finance team, you know, which are the advisors for you going through this flotation and IPO process, and their close relationship with the institutional investors. Um, I was probably a bit naive um, g- going into that because I'll give you an example, all, all the way through the process. Um, we were all talking about a certain share price, you know, so each share would get a certain amount of money. Um, And this was through all the presentations, through all the projections, uh, forecasts, everything that we had. Um, And then just before the launch date, so just before it was going to be sort of launched onto the the stock exchange, um, we we were asked to drop the price of the shares. And Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a massive drop. It was between 10 to I think 10 or 15%. Um, but but it was one of those moments where you're, you're so close to the launch and you're suddenly, okay, you think you're going to launch at one share price, and you're now being told to secure all the investors, then the launch price has, your know, share price has been slightly lower. So that mm-hmm. that was a, uh, not so much a scary moment, but, I mean, it was a, a, a moment that I'll probably never forget. Uh, but thankfully, you know, we achieved the aim of, of getting 100% uptake um, and 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 that's what we achieved. So so it was a very successful launch. Um, but but I didn't see that one coming. Mm-hmm.
0: What could you explain the significance of that? Like first of all, why were you being advised that? Was there any ulterior motive, or was that genuinely like why the sudden change compared to what you'd been talking about all along? Uh, yeah. First of all
1: um i mean it's very hard to know exactly the reason but but i can only give you my 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 opinion i mean my my opinion was that a number of these investors were very are very close you know institutional investors you know pension funds and the likes are are very close to corporate finance advisors and i think that like most people they're always looking for a good deal um mm. the, the, the thing mm-hmm. that like i say i wasn't i was probably naive about was that you know, a good deal gets done very close to the launch date. So mm-hmm. um I I thought that we'd have discussed all of that far more openly leading up to the to, to the launch. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I can only sort of liken it to selling a house, I suppose, and then at the very last minute somebody says, Oh, I'm gonna pay slightly less for it and you are so far down the process that, that it's very difficult to 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 sort of cut your losses and say, Well, no. Um,
0: Right. Yeah, good analogy. That makes that makes total sense. So um can you talk through the because that's a ma- that's a huge growth trajectory from 10 million to hundred million. So you, you increase by 10 times in, in five years. Am I getting that time scale right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So um what were the key Success factors that enabled you to uh, to achieve that phenomenal growth rate.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was part organic, part um, acquisitive. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think I have to put a lot of it down to the focus of the teams we had and the businesses we brought in. So the the, the idea was to have a selection of specialists. Uh, teams, you know, originally they was they had their own brand as they came into the group, but over time they they, they changed to the InterQuest Group brand, um, and and I truly believe that that specialist approach, which is very similar to you know what we have at Red, that you know when you specialize and you deal within a niche, I, I, I just think you you've got far better chance of being more successful than being this generalist sort of commodity type service offering, and. Um, I, you know, I often think back, you know, if I hurt my knee, whatever, doing skiing or whatever, um, I'd want to see a specialist, you know, a specialist consultant who knows a thing or three about knees, you know, not not just go see the GP who says, oh, I'm sure you'll be okay, Uh, just rest up for a couple of days. So I've always been a big believer in specialist focus, niche markets, knowing your market, knowing the clients, uh, sectors, um, where I just believe you can add far more value, um, and, and, and I think that held us in good stead
0: okay, that makes total sense. I agree one hundred percent. so Interquest group was made up of a number of specialist teams, each who were experts in their in their niche market that understood their market very well, could add more value and uh, be less commoditized in each of those each of those markets. Um, tell me why did you decide to grow by acquisition, what was the what's the advantage of doing that? I
1: think um, I mean, and this this probably falls in more with private equity, um, although this obviously Interquest wasn't private equity. Um, is 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 that whole uh, arbitration sort of model? You know that that the, that if you've got a company and your enterprise value is say I don't know at the time we were maybe nine eight or nine times earnings. Um, you start, you know, strategically looking at bolt-on acquisitions, and if you can uh, buy, obviously going to be smaller, so they will have a, a, a lower multiple. Um, you know, you can pick these companies up for three, four, five times earnings, and then obviously they join the group. The group grows, um, and their earnings are, are, are now perceived to be worth nine or you know eight or nine times. So it was a it was a play of Growing quickly, um, and and being able to offer clients, you know, a great service by by having different mm-hmm. teams focusing on different areas of of technology staffing. Mm.
0: So when you say uh, niche specialist, they were all still within technology. So as an overall business, it was a technology recruiting business. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. I had, had gotcha. sort of you know a finance team, a public sector team or a whole division. So we had, you know, they had different pockets of of disciplines and specialisms.
0: Okay. So um, now it makes sense. So by making these strategic acquisitions, you can pick up a company, let's say for five times earnings, but by the time it's folded into your group, then, you know, it's now worth you know, maybe twice as much as that. So you're, you're creating value through these acquisitions. Yes. Um, But there's, isn't there a downside in terms, I mean, it's not easy to integrate all these different businesses, is it? I I was part of, um, uh, well, I, when I was in recruiting, I worked for a company called Melville Craig, which was acquired by TMP uh, in 2001. TMP went through this massive, Uh, sort of acquisition, you know, trail around the world, buying up uh, lots of businesses. And then they've since become Hudson Global. But, um, you know, I I remember at the time just observing, it seemed like there was enormous amount of difficulties and, and hassles trying to bring all these different companies with different cultures Uh, you know, all all together. What was your experience of that?
1: (laughs) That sounds a very familiar story, Mark. (laughs) Um, But, but, I mean, my my experience, because I'd been through this with MPS. I mean, at the time when I was with MPS, uh, I remember they went through a year where they made 26 acquisitions, you know, so an acquisition every other week. Now, now this was mainly in the U.S. Um, Okay. So, so I'd seen a lot of these things happen and the pitfalls, and and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple of things that I tended to focus on is one, um, I made sure that I did the management due diligence. So we obviously had lawyers, accountants, you know, to go all through the numbers and to make sure all the contracts, the companies we had, there was no skeletons in the cupboard with with bad liabilities. Um, but but I spent a lot of time on the management due diligence to make sure you know culturally. Could these guys integrate with us? Are they the right people to integrate with us? Um, So, you know, first thing, spotting the gap of the service offering that we need. So so once you've sort of got a tick in the box, yes, that's the service offering we need. And we want to buy it in opposed to take a number of years to to grow organically. So spot the gap. And then the management due diligence, like I say, was something that I really focused on. And... You know, on a number of these acquisitions, the owner who owns, well, the major shareholder, say he's the managing director of it, owns seventy or eighty or percent, um, is trying to say to you that they want to stay with it once you acquire them. Um, and of course, the more you get to know the person, you think, well. You might think you do now, but you're used to running your own show. You know, you're going to be integrated Mm. into a company that's a PLC. There's a lot of disclosure things when you're on the stock market. Um, And there's going to be certain policies and things that we do uh, that, that, you know, you you can't just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. So Mm. there was a lot of reality check with people of the, saying that they wanted to stay with it and and I had to say, well, no, you know, stay for the first six months, but, but it's not going to be right for you. And, and Mm -hmm. you just got to trust me. You can't see that at the moment. Unfortunately, I think I can. Um, so you're absolutely right. The integration is very important and it's very important upfront to, to try and foresee potential pitfalls before Mm -hmm. the relationship really does start to move together. Um, and, mm. and yeah, you know, I've seen it with, with owners that, um, you know, the minute you give them a Samsonite suitcase full of cash for their business the next morning, they haven't got the, quite the same spring in their step. You know, what I mean, they've, they've worked <laughs> for 10 years or 20 years to build up this company. You've just given them a load of money for it. Um, you know, their their sort of journey is complete
0: on that particular mm. project. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. So there's pre-acquisition, there's the management due diligence. Um, and what else are you looking for in the management team, apart from the MD who's probably going to exit the business? Um, what else are you assessing to decide this is going to be a good fit for us?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, one of, the, one of the things was always looking for the the, the second tier and seeing mm. How much energy and passion have they got for the business? And once you lift the lid off the second tier, are they are they going to explode and, and you know have a great career? Uh, so always keen to understand who are the ones that are actually going to be the driving force for the next journey. You, you know, you look at all yeah. these situations, and there was a journey to them going to this acquisition, and then there's the journey once they get integrated into into the group and. It's really making sure that these are guys that haven't peaked, you know, their careers haven't peaked. They've still got a long way to go. Um, And they're full of energy and and they want Mm -hmm. to learn. And, you know, lifting the lid off of them gives them that chance to really grow and and show what they can do, Um, you know, with the right coaching and, and obviously the
0: right mentoring. So absolutely. So I guess reverse engineering this, thinking about uh, owners who would like to exit at some stage, then having that strong second tier in place must be one of the critical factors, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And uh, so then post-acquisition, though, I've seen, not been involved at Close Hand, but from... Afar, there's there's often a lot of staff turnover and a lot of you know people who um, don't like the new. They like the way the old way. They don't like the new way. How do you ma- do the sort of change management piece a- post integration to try and you know keep the things that were good about the original business that made you want to acquire it in the in the first place? Yeah. But- I mean, there is
1: a bit of an art to that, and, and I think um, yeah, very much at the start of this acquisition, it's okay, are, are we acquiring this company because it's a good company and we're going to help it be a great company? Yeah, mm-hmm. And if that is the case and we're acquiring it because there's a certain service offering that they've got that we have not already got, then you know it makes it easier to work with them and turn them into a great business a- opposed to well we're just buying up critical mass you know we, mm-hmm. we we we've got enough um you know this service offering we do it across the uk we're buying you guys in france because we don't do it in france so um and and we want you to fall in line with all of our processes and commission structures and everything we do um, so we, we, we were very fortunate that what we were acquiring in was a specialist in a certain area, which didn't mean that they have to have everything exactly the same as as, as everyone in the group. So so each division and each business unit had a certain amount of um, autonomy or um, dif- different ways of going to market because it had a different service offering. So, so there wasn't cool. the need to... Um, one size fits all.
0: Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Fantastic. And then, um, tell me about the, do you, do you remember the day that you floated? What was, what was that like?
1: It was brilliant. It was, you know, it was sort of two and a half years, I think, or three years of work to get there and, and we'd finally got there. And, um, I remember, um, you know, the three of us or four of us, I should say on the board at the time. Um, one of them had a bottle of red wine that dated back to I think it was 1970, um, and he said, "Right, you know, we're going to drink this this red wine." <laughs> so, open the red wine. Uh, unfortunately, it tasted awful. Um, I, I'm not quite sure. It obviously been something was wrong with it, corked or. Um, but, but you know, this thing was sort of 30 eight years old or whatever. Um, and it (laughs) it's horrible, but, but we we then went out and and had a really nice dinner and, um, started obviously like you always do. You sort of, well, that's great. You know, really enjoyed it. Right. What,
0: what's next? You know? And and it was very much focusing
1: on the new world. Um, so uh, how how long long did you sort
0: of, Oh, okay. That quickly, I was going to say how long did you sort of, uh, euphoria lasts before you then go back to real, like, okay, now what's, think, what's next? Yeah.
1: I think it got as far as desserts.
0: <laughs> okay. Wow. That's cool. Um, and then another couple of years, uh, of, of building, um, building that business. And then you, you moved on to Hortons. Um, what do you feel was your major contribution in, in that position?
1: Um,
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, it'd be interesting what
1: the management partners think it was. Um, I mean, my my take at the time was that they, they didn't have a group CEO, so it was a, it was a really interesting um, dynamic of a business. And they said, you know, you, "Would you be our first CEO?" So, so you know, obviously, I met with the, the, the shareholders and tried to understand what it was they were trying to achieve. And it was really to um, put together a strategic plan for the 32 sort of countries, or I think at the time it might have been 27, and and since then sort of added more countries. Um, So putting that plan together was something that that I really enjoyed doing, um, Mm. and I believe added a lot of value, uh, as well as bringing... In or attracting a, a number of new partners to the group. I mean, the German business was was a really good business for the, to, to join the group. They're a very large company. Um, so that that was probably one of the highlights was bringing in uh, the, the the German partner. But but the strategic plan was was something that took several months to um, mm-hmm. put together. And you know, you can obviously mm-hmm. understand the challenges. Of having thirty two different countries um, and the cultures within thirty two different countries and and each managing partner or each country managing partner um, had a significant shareholding in that country's business so that that was sort of an interesting dynamic as well and and all the managing partners. Their businesses were at a different development stage in their country. You know, some were very small, some were very large and had been around for years in those countries. Um, and so their businesses were in a different development stage. Their own careers were in different development stages, um, which meant the, you know, quite often the country goals were very different to the group goals. So so trying mm. to align those two um, w- w- was was more difficult than than what I initially anticipated. And and I think that's why it took several months, or maybe eight or nine months, to to finalise this three to five year strategic plan, um, which all culminated in me presenting it at a global conference in Washington, DC, and experiencing one of those moments, Mark, where you think, right, okay, um, I'm really not sure how has gone down um, because you know you're presenting to to an audience, which, which all great people, but but um, you know some give you the nodding head and and, and some do nothing. They just look at you, uh, so but, but, and you're not quite sure. Um, whether they're understanding what you're saying, because obviously there's the, the language difference. Um, although you know most of them, uh, if not nearly all of them, spoke English. Uh, but obviously some better than others. Um, but thankfully, you know, the plan got unanimous approval by shareholders and managing partners. And and you know personally, I, I felt delighted that 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 had happened. Um, and you know, it, it's a great company, Horton International. Great bunch of guys and girls. Um, But when I got to a stage, I think it was four years, uh, that that I felt that I'd taken it as far as I could take it. Um, So, you know, and then the Red opportunity came about. So, um, you know, I I
0: chose to uh, join Red. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks, but by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. We're definitely going to talk about Red because that is current and it's a very dynamic and interesting company. Um, before we do, I would like to learn more about your strategic planning process because as you were talking, I was getting a feeling of deja vu. I, I have a mentor called Romney Roz. I don't know if you, you have come across him in the industry. Uh, actually,
1: I came across um, Romney early days of Interquest.
0: Ah, okay. So um Romney's retired now and he lives half the year in the south of France and uh and half in the in the in the south of England. But um so he's a lovely, you know, wonderful guy, uh hugely experienced, and he helped me put together a program called Recruitment Growth Accelerator, which um is is now a, an online course. One of those modules is about strategic planning to make your business grow. And it's about how to do a sort of three to five year strategic plan. And at the time, and he's been involved it's similar to you in, in mergers and acquisitions and IPOs and trade sales and and so on. And I thought that was a Romney Ross thing, but clearly there's, uh, you know, that, is an idea that you had uh, independently as well. So why, why do you need a strategic plan? What does it do for the business? And then what, you know, what does it contain? Yeah. I, I mean, just talking specifically
1: without giving too many of Horton's secrets away. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, Horton is understanding the start position. I think in all businesses, you are got to say, okay, well, um, you might have this ambition, and you might want to get to a certain place, but but let's have a reality check. You know where the hell are we starting from? You know, so um, and it, because Horton had not had the CEO in the past, um, you know, it was it was doing very well, but um, there was nothing, there was no glue really holding it together with, with a clear direction. Um, so so we didn't have that that leadership. Um, (laughs) Or that one person to blame, which way you want to look at it. Um, And it was, you know, the thing that was needed was, one, to glue these 32 countries a bit closer together. Two, looking at the strengths of the business. and, and, And each country had some great global clients, but the group wasn't doing enough with those clients globally. You know, so um, if that makes sense. So each country yeah, yeah. would say, yeah, we do a lot of business with this global client, um, but but other parts of the group were just not really engaged or involved. So um, a lot of it was collaboration, um, putting forums together or putting plans together or putting, uh, I mean, we had a, a new website. We had, a uh, you know, in those days, an intranet that, that pulled everything together. Um, so, like I say, for for that type of business, it was far more about understanding the strengths and making sure that we could maximise those strengths and get greater collaboration. Um, and, and one of the other points, which I must admit, I've not looked at the plan for several years, so I can't remember four years or so. I can't remember exactly everything that was in it, but 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 but, but one of the things that um, I, I did spend time with people on is something that I called self optimization So making sure that the managing partners were doing the part of their job that they could add the most value, and 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 not doing lots of process things that people. Uh, there I say, sort of below them in, in the business could do and would rise to do. Um, so there was a big drive on, are you doing the right things? What should you delegate? Um, you know, and if you've got 20-odd years or 30 years in executive search, you know, you you can certainly hold your own in front of some really big clients. So let's get you in front of those clients more than, um, it, 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 you know, back in the office Monitoring the headhunting that's going on, or the resourcing, or delivery. Uh, so it was a combination of, of, of elements, lots of different elements, but but it wasn't it wasn't a rocket science strategic plan. It was one of really assessing everything and understanding everybody's views on things, and then building up um, a plan that everyone could see that it could add value to their own business as well as the group. Um, but the main thing was, I think, was the collaboration.
0: Cool. All right. Interesting. So, Ross, what was it that attracted you to join Red? Yeah. I mean, I suppose
1: if I if I look back, um, you know, I started off in technology recruitment just over thirty years ago. So. Um, Doing the Horton role, which although we had technology within, it, it was executive search. So, so it was it was different to to tech sort of staffing. Um, and my my belief has always been firm on on this niche sort of uh, business and, and niche focus. And and I it's, you know I knew Red's journey. I'd known it. You know, I mean. 21 years old now, I, I knew Red before it even started. Uh, when I was at MPS, we acquired a business called IT Link, which was an SAP staffing business. And um, the, the, the owners or the, the founders of Red, um, at least one of them was, was at IT Link just before we acquired it. And, and, and he, he left to, to set Red up. Uh, when I was at Interquest, I gave him a call to see if we could acquire Red but um, I was probably about two weeks too late. They'd already gone into a agreement with Inflexion, you know, private equity firm. Um, and I've always known people at Red, and I've always sort of admired the brand and and the the, the sort of the focus and the opportunity. So when <clears throat> um, I got approached about it, um, it's sort all of about timing these things, Mark. You know. I, Get approached and have been approached over the years for different roles, and the timing has just been wrong. Um, and this time, you know, I'd done my sort of four years when I thought it would be a five-year stunt with with Halton, and, and and the timing just seemed right. Um, and and I certainly would not have gone to a a, a large generalist um, you know recruitment firm. Um, uh, 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 and and I say so red came up and I say so niche focused um mm-hmm.
0: and ticked a, ticked all the boxes. Mhm. All right, awesome. So yeah, specialist uh you know which is something we both believe in tell me about how you've been able to steer red commerce through the pandemic and 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 beyond because um this has been a really tough like and unprecedented you know 12, 18 months. So, um, how do you think you've been able to to, to achieve that?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, if I th- if I think back, if if we sort of go back to whatever it was, March last year. Yeah. Um, our, our financial year starts first of April, so it goes first of April through to end of March, and and of course. Um, I think we can all remember it was sort of mid-March uh, or third week in March that the wheels fell off and uh, everyone I mean, lockdown started. Um, and of course, we, we'd gone through our budgeting process to to start our new budget on the first of April, um, and all of a sudden, you know, the the, the world was changing. So um, we, I like to think we were fortunate in a number of ways, and and just very quick. At making things happen in in another way, and the things I think we're very fortunate, but we we've we got a great technology department within red. we've got great systems um, and everything we have is a- accessible from any location, so everything's based in the cloud um, and and it was very, very easy to go to remote working, you know so. Um, I I feel we were blessed that we had all that set up uh, prior to to the pandemic and got a great HR team a leadership team Uh, so straight away internal communication you know was always going to be very high from the minute everybody started to work remotely Um, and from my own sort of perspective you know I'd, I'd been through three previous slowdown stroke recessions um, mm-hmm. and and I knew that I, I knew what we had to do it was just can I make sure that everybody's confident in what I'm going to be asking them to do and is the trust level and the belief there and and and, and they were the things that I really had to make sure that our leadership team um, everybody had the trust the belief and and the view that um well yeah you know ross has got enough experience he should know what to do you know um so so that was that was a great kind of start point the the other thing that that, that was good was um and, and this was a fellow country person of yours mark um it was a lady in canada um you know i'd known for a number of years uh explained to me she said ross you know what, she, she runs a small sap sort of project business in canada and she said, "We're very fortunate um, because SAP projects are like IT pregnancies." And I thought, "Right, okay, <laughs> not quite <laughs> okay. sure what you mean by this, but but anyway." She she went on to further explain that you know once you start an uh, SAP project, I mean they are big; it's big money, uh, but obviously it's a big return on investment that the companies are looking for. But yes. Predominantly, once that project has started, because so much has gone into getting the thing off the ground, um, it really has to go to the end. You know, and she was saying it's like the birth of a child. You know, once the pregnancy starts, you know, it has to go to the end. So, yeah. and, and she was absolutely right. You know, we we had a number of people working on projects, and yes, you know, not all the companies were in the most resilient of sectors, but um, you, you just look at you know. To, to have SAP as your core system you've got to be a pretty sizable business. Um, so we, we we were fortunate that, that we didn't suddenly wake up one morning and find out that we had a number of contractors in you know a, a factory in, in Germany and the factory gets closed down because everybody's working from home and all the contractors get, get sort of laid off. So we're, we're very fortunate that that wasn't the case. Um, but But when I look back on the year, I, I think it was, yeah. You know, there the, well, there was definitely two halves to the year. You know, the, 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 there was the first half. I want to say to the year. I mean, from the first of April to so the first of mm-hmm. our financial year, from you know from the first of April, um, you know, very quickly put in uh, what I called our H one sort of six point strategy, and, and it, it was very much focused on, on six things, um, and, and obviously the first one revenue you know, to make sure we can keep the lights on. Um, there was one on clients, you know, the clients that we're focusing on, identifying ideal client profiles. So ones that we know are gonna see through the pandemic or perform better than others, looking at we had project trackers, what projects were in danger of, of being cut short, which ones just had to keep going, you know, so it was, Um, you know, the analogy was, which of these projects are oil tankers that have just left the port, you know, so it's going to take them a while to turn around, and which ones are just little speed boats that can turn around and are very nimble. Um, So there there was a lot of effort put on that. Um, We put a lot of effort on focusing uh, what we called our staff card, so head count of were there people that, that their job had sort of disappeared for the short term, so should they be put on furlough? Um, were there people that were sort of ineffective? Um, and and we didn't have that many people on furlough, but but there were some clear um, positions that when we were not in the office, um, they couldn't do their role if we were not in the office. So so we we were as fair as we could with furlough, and also did a bit of a top up of salary. For a number of people that that you know that, that were above the, the, the maximum on furlough, um, probably like most companies, you know, non-critical spending was another thing that we very much focused on. Um, cash conservation, which I think every CFO in the land was being told that you know they've got to conserve their cash wherever they can, mm-hmm. um, and you know, very important was the whole communication thing. You know, internally as well as with candidates and, um, and clients. But, but the internal communication was, was a real big thing. Um, and, and I was really pleased that everybody pulled together um, and certainly in the early days um, seemed to adapt very quickly to this uh, sort of remote work in remote forums. Um, I, I mean, I you know, prior to that, I think my last trip in the US was February, so just before the pandemic broke. And I I was going to the US once a quarter, you know, I've got three offices in Germany, I was in Germany sort of probably once a month or once every six weeks. And with all that stopping um, was strange, but it did enable me to have three or four meetings a day, you know, over Teams um, or Zoom meetings um, in three or four countries. You know, so so uh, what would normally be a trip that would take a week in the US, you know, the, the, those meetings could be done in in a couple of days um, on Teams, and even fit in the middle of the two US meetings a meeting with somebody in Germany. You know? So so it, it was adapting. Yeah, you know, I think it was really adapting, and and really pleased that our Our staff were able to adapt um, uh, which i say so, so that was great for the first half and then moving on to um i think it was probably about late summer where it became clear that um the pandemic had forced a number of companies to start plowing money into technology and automation, mm-hmm. so you know sort of seeing seeing that happen um, gave us the opportunity to then okay still be cautious but you know the 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 next 6 months was going to be a focus on what I called a defensive growth strategy so um you know we were we weren't certainly not out of the woods but we could see that we could still grow and and where the opportunities were so um that that, that had some good successes with um not only SAP Uh, staffing, but we started to look a bit more on what I call adjacent technology. So looking at clients that have SAP but they've also got some of the cloud software products or other products that um, sort of bolt into their core system and they've got Mm -hmm. needs and we've been this great partner for them at SAP and and they said to us, you know, can you you help us out with these adjacent technologies? So that's been a good area for us to Um, expand and add more value uh, to to the client, uh, you know, the the current clients. Um, So those things have worked really well. And uh, when I think of the risks, I I think certainly the last 12 months, the, the biggest risk has been, for me, is, you know, there's one thing knowing what you need to do. Um, but it's quite a different thing actually making sure that everybody buys into it and does it and, and does it to the mm-hmm. best of their ability. So um I'm very thankful to everyone in red because um, you know, people have stepped up to the plate and and you know, it, it's been challenging, you know, this whole lockdown, mm-hmm. um the mental health side. I mean, it, it's just it it's been extremely challenging for everybody. But but like I say, I'm thankful that we've got a team that's Bonded, and we have the resources, you know, with our HR mm. teams um, and technology teams to, to give what I believe
0: the best support um, our, our, our staff need. And, and so, Ross, what, um, what have been the sort of changes within Red that even when, you know, people go back to the office and things return, you know, more like normal, then what are the things that you'll keep I, I think, um,
1: I mean, I think there's, there's been a lot of learns and, and a lot of learns from, let's say adapting to uh, environments, you know, in different countries mm-hmm. and, and the way that we work. So the return to the office, um, you know, we, we have people working back in some of the offices now, um, mm-hmm. there, there is certainly no mandate that says you must work in the office. You know, this is out of them wanting to work there and, and teams working mm-hmm. together, um, so so i think we'll be in the hybrid model certainly for for the next few years and i i really want to see how this sort of pans out and um it, it even turn it on its head a bit to say if someone's in the office why the hell are you here you know why are you in the office and not working remotely you know and if it's well i'm in the office because i'm meeting with the team and we're doing this and we're fine right but if you're in the office just to do the job that you could do from home then I don't mind you being in the office, but but I, I think we are turning the the, the the whole situation on its head and um, not making people think that they've got to go through a commute just because oh well I've got to be in the office more. Um yeah. it's got to be a more of a, a need to be there. So so it's still early days, and and I think um, I think like a lot of these things that 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 instead of making things mandatory, you know, there's the option and And then things start to move in the the best way for people to be productive and the best way for them to be super successful um and then the thought processes start to crystallize and they okay well maybe these should be the policies moving forward or, or this should be the norm you know not not complete to do whatever you like you know um but 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 I think we're too early on that and and we've been very successful i mean we've we've grown um well, the the sort of quarter, January, February, March was nearly, I think it was just under double-digit growth year on year with the quarter of the year before. Um, We started this financial year obviously very strongly. Um, So, you know, there isn't isn't a need in the business to, to, you you know, to, to try to instruct uh, because they're, they're, they're all doing a very good job at the moment um, and, and obviously I'm very grateful for that.
0: You might remember back in episode 43, I talked to Plam Ivanov, the executive chairman of iIntro. If you missed it, it's well worth going back into the archives and having a listen. One of the things we talked about was a way for recruiters to shift the conversation with prospects away from fees and make it all about value iintro has created a tool called the Bad Hire Calculator that you can show to your prospects that proves to them that your recruitment service will save them potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. When you can do that, the exact fees you charge almost become immaterial because you've proved that you will save the client the most money in the long run. If you'd like to add this tool to your arsenal, you'd be pleased to know that I've partnered with iintro and they're offering a 25% discount to listeners of the Resilient Recruiter podcast. All you have to do to claim this discount is book a free consultation and mention my name or this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, follow the instructions, and I intro will take care of the rest. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. I think what you just said is huge because many com- companies perhaps... Overreacted, or you know, I, I suppose when you're in that crisis, it's hard to really know um, the right course. But I feel like there were a lot of redundancies, which now that the market has bounced back, everyone's trying to hire again. Those companies that were a bit more ruthless may find it harder now to attract the staff that uh, that they that they want. So um, it sounds like you you made some. Good decisions in that regard. Um, what uh, I'm looking at, by the way, at the the redsapsolutions.com website. You've got a really good work for a Red page, uh, which outlines your employer value proposition. What do you think is the key? Because growing a successful recruiting business, you know, does largely depend on being able to attract and retain really good people. What do you think are the secrets to doing that? Because so many in our industry get it wrong, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I, I try to look through this, um, well, through a lens of, of when I was a sales guy. Um, and, you know, when I first came into the industry, I, I can always remember I came in the office at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, by eleven o'clock, I was on the phone. Being a 360 sales guy with no experience, uh, and in those days you had what's called the Computer Users Yearbook that had all the uh, companies in the UK listed, that what software they had and what their mainframe was at that time. Um, and you know how things have changed dramatically. I mean, um, you know, for, first thing in red, the sales guys, it's the 180 degree model, so we've got a big uh, delivery team. Well, same size sales team, same size as delivery team. So, uh, yeah. people coming in, if they're coming into delivery, we've got some great internal trainers. We've got coach side, um, desk side coaches. Uh, you know, we've got all the all the tools and all the systems um, to make them as successful as possible. So, I'm really pleased that there's a good induction and, and good training programs for people without experience coming into delivery. And then also ones that want to make the uh, the transition from, from delivery to sales. Um, so I, I've always tried to look at in all the businesses I've been with to say, okay, can I make sure that a sales guy in our company will be more successful here than anywhere else? You know, everyone's got limitations of their ability, but have we got the right? Brand, yeah, you know, which I believe we have. Have we got a good market for them to focus on, and have we got the the right uh, development for them? So, career path development, the training, um, and, and I believe we have that. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a continuous improvement. You're always looking to improve it where you can. But I believe we've got all the tools um, for people to be super successful, and it's just really the application, you know. And, and I think we've all seen. Um, I haven't seen so many recently, but but we've all seen over the years people that suddenly their get up and go has got up and gone, you know. So they need to be motivated to do the job. Um, um, so we're, we're, you know, spending time, obviously, developing them, motivating them. Um, but that really leads in for me, Mark, to, to growth. You know, if you grow, you give people a chance to grow their careers, and and, and I love to see have a company that's growing and people in the company growing at the same pace that the company's growing. Mm. So they're being developed, they're taking on bigger tasks. Um, and and that's why I've always been a great advocate for, for growth, because if you don't grow yes. and you stagnate, then there really isn't a lot of career opportunities for people. They're, they're just kind of as like someone needs, they might get get the next job. Whereas a growing business... Uh, gives everybody the opportunity for a great career.
0: A hundred percent. In fact, it's really interesting because so often I speak to recruitment business owners, and they tell me things like, "Mark, you know, I'd like to grow, but not. We don't want to get too big. We, you know, just like to have a nice size business, maybe, and whatever that size is for them, they'll they'll give me a number of twenty people or whatever it is they want." And I say to them, "Well, look, if you're going to bother growing at all," rather than just have a lifestyle business, which is, you know, generating a nice income for you, if you are gonna grow, why put any limitations on it? Why not really go for it? Because the problem you'll run into is attracting and retaining the best people. If there's no, on, if there's no continuous career development for them, then wh- how are you gonna keep hold of them? So you almost have to grow in order to get the best people. Totally agree. Totally agree. And, you know, you've you,
1: you got to be sensible about it and and my view has always been this sustainable growth model is what you want. You, you don't want something that suddenly spikes up so quickly because you know it's going to drop at some stage so quickly. So it is the whole sustainable growth path underpinning it um, and, and just making sure that you've got a good solid platform uh, to keep taking the business to, to the next level. Um, and, um, you yeah, know, we, we've achieved that at the moment with Red. Um, I mean, even today, you know, we're on the highest number of, of contract people, you know, runners that we have out doing work, you know, working on our behalf. Um, and, you know, it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. So, um, wow, you know, that's it's, amazing. It's, it's great to just keep that, keep that sustainable and, and underpinned properly.
0: Did, did you guys have much of a uh, hit with IR 35? Because a lot of IT recruiting firms that I've spoken to, that was a major headache for them, mainly because clients seem to overreact or get mm-hmm. concerned about <clears throat> their risk, their liability, and the, and, and, you know and that and that really decimated their number of runners at least in the in the mm. short term how how I know that's a big conversation, probably more we have time for that today, but what yeah. what was impact for you guys
1: yeah um I'll try and give you the short version yeah I think the short version is um you know we we've got a good legal team um and they were very well versed on what we need to do um you know way before. we we needed to do it. So, so it was great. So we were ahead of the game um, on that side. Uh, Secondly, only, uh, although we have a lot of people based in London, you know, um, know, we have teams in London that that focus on mainland Europe. So um, at the last count, I I think it's about 11%, 11% of our revenues come from the UK. So that, that's pretty small compared to obviously the mm. the, the group. Um, and the mm. third point I would say is because we have people doing what I would call mission critical roles, you know, sort of yes. senior, very sort of senior project roles, um, SOWs have, have, have played a big part um, in the way that you know, we put contracts together. So... Our exposure to IR35 was always going to be a lot lower or a lot less than than a number of other uh, staffing companies, um, and and I'm sure if I if I went through all the detail, we we have had a hit somewhere along the line, but it hasn't been thankfully material for us to say, oh right, you know, there's a big blip there. Um, so I, you know, I think we did what we needed to do when we needed to do it, and we were not exposed massively to IR35 from the get-go.
0: Well, that's great news, glad to, to hear that. Ross, we're out of time for today, but I've really enjoyed meeting you. So thank you for taking the time to share your 30 years experience and and uh, some of the l- real nuggets in there. So that's been great, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.